Good morning, Knox. Our first scripture reading for today is from Genesis chapter 1, starting at verse 31, to Genesis chapter 2, up to verse 3. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Our second reading is from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Why don't you join me in prayer? Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that speaks life to us. And we pray that as we reflect on it, not only now, but as that word lingers with us throughout this week, we pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to apply that to our lives and our hearts. Make it come alive. May these words that we have heard resonate deeply within us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This past week, I was reading an article that mapped out the emotional arc of emergencies and disasters, pandemics like we're in the middle of right now. Emergency managers use these models of disaster phases, they call them, to sort of guide and organize their relief efforts and then to better understand where people are at in the, the midst of a pandemic or a disaster. It's a model that helps understand sort of the, the full range of human emotion, what people are experiencing at different phases as disasters unfold, as emergencies continue. So first of all, they, they say there's the impact phase. This is a time of frenzy, of intense emotion, like where we fight over toilet paper and hand sanitizer and we get all panicked and uh, about reserves. Then comes the heroic phase where we celebrate the heroes, where every night we ring bells or pots and pans as we celebrate frontline healthcare workers. After that comes the honeymoon phase. And that is marked by a sense of optimism, um, where glimmers of hope begin to appear. Sort of like the summer we've had, where the number of COVID cases have really encouragingly dipped. But then as the emergency continues, these emergency workers say next comes another phase, perhaps one of the more difficult phases, what they call the disillusionment phase, where all of a sudden everyone realizes the effects, the impact of this disaster, this emergency, it's going to go on for a lot longer than we hoped. And you guessed it, that's the phase we're in right now, in the middle of this COVID-19 pandemic, a stage where these uh, researchers find that there can be some distinct declines in people's well-being, and we as a church want to be attentive to that. Now, what re researchers also found as they studied emergencies 
and disasters is the vital importance of what they call spiritual fortitude. Now that's distinct from what you might commonly know as resilience. They differentiate between resilience and spiritual fortitude. In an article published in the American Psychological Association's journal called uh, Psychological Trauma, Research from a number of different studies were brought together to identify what happens to survivors of emergencies over the long haul. And what they found was that spiritual fortitude enabled people to not only make it through, but to actually thrive within emergencies because they were able to reimagine what flourishing looked like, felt like, was like, even in a situation that was very bleak. So the article said this, quote, spiritual fortitude predicted well-being, meaning, lower anxiety, and greater coping above and beyond the predictive power of grit and resilience. So how did this spiritual fortitude grow? The study showed that um, it came through what researchers called sacred connections with God, others, and themselves. Now, as we face the ongoing effects and impact of COVID-19, our Christian faith offers us the gift of this spiritual fortitude, the capacity to reimagine what flourishing looks like for us so that we might experience meaning, hope, purpose in the midst of it all. And that will happen as we experience what those researchers called sacred connections with God, others, and ourselves those places where we experience God. But where are those? Isn't that exactly what David asks in Psalm 42? He says, my soul thirsts for the living God. Where can I go to meet with the living God? When can I meet with the living God? God, who's omnipresent, who is available, accessible everywhere in time and history, He nonetheless meets us in places. He comes to us close in certain places. And one of those places is the spiritual disciplines. Followers of Jesus have long held that it is the spiritual disciplines, the practices of Jesus, that are those places where God comes to meet with us. Spiritual practices are, are what you might call holy habitations. Those habitations where the Spirit of God comes near and meets us. So here's our choice as we face this ongoing pandemic, as we are in what they call the disillusionment phase. We can give ourselves over to escapist practices, and you see that. There are increasing rates of alcohol use, drug use. We're binging in greater ways on Netflix and other streaming services. So we could could continue in these patterns of escapist practices, or... We can walk with Jesus. We can walk his way, building his holy habits in us, new rhythms that actually might mark us for the rest of our lives. And so we are calling our church, our whole church community, wherever we live, we are calling our church to live out three core practices for the duration of this pandemic. We've prayed, we've discerned, and we we thought these practices, we chose three that felt doable for us. They seem especially suitable for us in this COVID moment, especially suitable for our pandemic living. They are the practices of Sabbath, of listening, listening to God, listening to others, and community or friendship. 
these pandemic practices or our holy habits offer to us the promise of being marked by a growing faith, uh, the capacity to walk in deeper communion with Jesus, even in this global crisis. Because we're convinced that now is the time that God is inviting us to come near to him, to become more fully devoted to him, to become more like Jesus Christ. This, this time is, is not a time for us to shrink back, to fall back, just to survive, but it is the opportunity for us to experience a greater transformation through the power of the Holy Spirit. We can know spiritual fortitude, and that comes through these sacred connections with God. The Christian spiritual practices, they are formation tools for our lives. They are the ways that God's Holy Spirit counters so many of the deformations, the malformations that happen as we live in culture. There are sort of a form of resistance to all the ways that we are being discipled by our culture. And instead, they shape in us a God-centered life. Spiritual practice is sort of work like an antidote to some of the poisonous parts of our culture today. And so part of our ministry plan during this pandemic is to grow strong in these three spiritual practices, Sabbath, listening, community, or friendship. And for the next three weeks, we're going to teach on these. We hope that we're going to continue to provide resources and encouragement in these three practices. But for the next three weeks, we want to give you a quick overview of what these practices might mean, how we might live with God in these ways and grow in all of us spiritual fortitude. So today we're going to look at Sabbath. Sabbath is the gift of that one day in seven that is set apart, made special. One day, every week, a full 24-hour period set aside for God. It's a day in which we stop doing anything that feels obligatory, dutiful. It's a day for delight instead. It's a day to enjoy meals, to play and pray with no chores, no obligations. It's one day of the week to orient ourselves around God's time. Now, to understand Sabbath, to really catch some of the beauty, the wonder, the mystery of it, we need to step back for a minute and think about time itself. Now, not all time is equal. I think we have a hunch, a sense for that. How we experience time can be very different. We understand time very differently, for instance, during a week of vacation at a lake and a week in the middle of a busy work week. Time feels different. Time has different meaning in an urban, complex city like Toronto than it does, let's say, in an agrarian culture where people are more tuned to the daily and the seasonal rhythms. For most of us, we understand time, we're shaped, our understanding of time is shaped through the clock. Time is measurable units, seconds, minutes, hours. Time is linear. It's relentlessly moving forward. You can't turn back the clock, people say. This clock view of time shapes a, a distinct relationship to time in each of us. We value, for instance, punctuality. We look down on what we might call wasting time. We strive to organize and save time. Think of all those devices that promise you that you're going to save time if you just purchase that device. 
And then clock time compartmentalizes life. It fragments our lives. We have separate times for different activities. There are work hours. There's family time, leisure time, study time, me time. Clock time has so shaped our living for us as Christians that we have become people who think we need to fit God into our schedules to find some God time rather than fit all of our lives into what God is doing. And that's a direct result of clock time, how we have been shaped by our understanding of time. Now, do you know where our clocks come from? There's a fascinating history to them. British scholar John Switton notes that the first clocks were developed by Benedictine monks. So in the monastery, life was marked by two daily rhythms of work and prayer. And they occurred at regular times and recurring times throughout the day. And to make sure that everyone would begin those activities together, a system of bells was developed to sort of hold the shape of the day together. So the original clocks, our clocks, developed by these monks, um, these systems of bells that were rung throughout the day. And they had a very clear purpose. John Swinton writes this. He says, these clocks, these systems of bells, originated to enable people to structure their lives in ways that were faithful to their beliefs and their spiritual way of life. Time, they knew, had a larger purpose and meaning. And the function of time was to be faithful to the purposes of God, to spend time faithfully. The focus of their bells was not punctuality or efficiency, but faithfulness. Were they faithful to their life of prayer? The clock was not about a life of productivity in which you had to fit God in. Rather, the whole of their life was understood as spiritual. And the clock helped them live in regular relationship with God. But today, we've become so shaped by clocks that we think we need to squeeze God in somewhere into our overly busy lives. What's happened to us? And now in the middle of a pandemic, time also feels different, doesn't it? All our days sort of bleed into one another. One day seems really no different than the other. Time seems to have lost a sense of purpose. There's no goal. Life sort of feels like someone's pressed the pause button on it. How, in the midst of that, can we live in God's time? We need a Christian view of time to understand the gift of God's time. And the creation story from Genesis 1 and 2 helps orient us to a distinct understanding of what time is. It shows us God forming the earth and a part of God's good creation is time itself, space and time. Time is a good gift given to us in creation. So we read, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening, And there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. But the seventh day, God had finished his work. And on the seventh day, he rested. He blessed the seventh day and he made it holy. Because on it, he rested from all the work of creating he had done. Time is a gift from God. The very first thing, interesting to note, the very first thing in all of our Bibles, in all of creation that God calls holy, is time. There's a Jewish rabbi, Rabbi Abraham Heschel, who notes that in the creation story, no object 
is called holy. No space is called holy. No place is called holy. That's sort of what we might expect, right? Like a mountain or a river where you might establish a sanctuary. We know about holy places, things set apart. But the very first thing the Bible calls holy, special, set apart is time. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Time, as it's created by God, by God, is sacred, holy, set apart for his purposes. But remember, the fall happened. Through the rebellion of humans, this created world has been filled with what scripture calls sin. It's broken. It's flawed. Everything is marked by it. Every created good is stained and distorted, including time. Have you ever thought about that, how time has fallen? It's, it's now a corrupted good. And so instead of it being a gift in which we receive God's loving goodness to us, it can become corrupted so that time feels like it's a slave master and where, where we're driven to busily produce. Instead of time being this gift from a loving creator serving the purposes of sustaining love, Time can lose its sense of purpose. It becomes this impersonal, this meaningless, relentless ticking of seconds and minutes that we can't stop. We feel this. Time itself has fallen and loses its goodness and it needs to be redeemed. And the good news, of course, is that in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, all things are being redeemed and restored, including the gift of time. In Jesus Christ, who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who was and is and is to come, in Jesus, the fullness of time has come upon us and we are freed now through what Jesus has done to live with a different understanding of time. In Jesus, we're, we're free to experience time in a new way. Time has a purpose. It's got a good goal. Time is moving towards that goal of Revelation 21, which declares God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That is where time is meaningfully moving towards. And because everything has been done for us in Jesus, in salvation, we are freed from the need to race around and do everything. Again, John Swinton writes, we are freed to slow down and learn what it looks like to accept that everything that is important for the redemption of the world has been achieved and continues to be achieved by, in, and through Jesus. And so as followers of Jesus, because of that reality, we are called to live in time differently than people who have bought into other narratives that understand and experience time differently. We need to allow the beauty, the grace, the rest of God's time to come upon us, to receive it. Another theologian, a Japanese theologian, Kosuki Koyama, points out an interesting thing. He says... Human beings, the average human being walks the speed of three miles an hour. That's about four and a half kilometers an hour. Jesus, who is God among us, Jesus walked three miles an hour. <clears throat> and Koyama writes this, God walks slowly because he is love. If he's not love, he would have gone much faster. Love has a speed. 
It is a spiritual speed. It is a different kind of speed from the technological speed to which we're accustomed. It is slow, and yet it is Lord over all other speeds since it is the speed of love. Now think of that. If Jesus, our Lord of all things, is walking three and a half miles, three miles an hour, But we're living our lives at some sort of frantic pace, a very different pace, hurrying and rustling about. We need to ask, who is it then that we're following? Because it doesn't seem like we're following Jesus then. We're following some other master. And this is where the practice of Sabbath is so vital, so critical to us. The practice of Sabbath is the place where our understanding of time gets redeemed and restored. The practice of Sabbath is the place where we meet God in time and where we experience God's created intentions for time. Now remember, time itself is impacted by the fall and our relationship with time, it needs to be redeemed and restored, renewed. And the practice of Sabbath does that work in us. Once a week, we have this day in which we catch the rhythms of God's grace The practice of Sabbath reminds us of a God who rests, who commands rest. The God that we center our lives on is not one who thrives on busyness and exhaustion. He does not demand from us productivity and efficiency. God invites us into his time to learn the rhythms of love. We are Sabbath people. In our practice of Sabbath, we experience the world in a different way. We're entering into God's time, this created gift of time, the holiness of time, this set apart. Time is made holy again through our Sabbath practice. And really, this, the practice of Sabbath, it is like an embodied sermon we experience on a weekly basis. Keeping a, a Sabbath day is a weekly sermon to us about grace. It teaches us that what comes first in our lives, in our identity, is not all our doing, not all our working. That's not what makes us or identifies us. What is primary about you and I is God's goodness and his grace to us. We do not work to please God, to prove ourselves to God. Rather, we begin with rest because God is already pleased with what he has accomplished in us. He delights in that. Clock time, it convinces us to think that it's all up to us, that we need to use our time to prove ourselves, to justify our existence. But that's a rat race. That's a spiritual rat race. We're not trying to prove to God how useful we are to him, how productive and good and worthy our lives are, because we can't do that, and we need not do it either. God's nature, as we see in this creation story, is to first give rest. Think of how that understanding of time just can shift even your sense of identity. You know, we think of the day, our days, as we wake up to an alarm clock and we hustle out for the day to accomplish all sorts of things and then we come back exhausted and we fall asleep and we wake up the next day to accomplish some more. That's the weekly cycle we walk through. But in God's rhythm, life begins with rest. Did you notice the cycle of the creation story? There's this repeated rhythm to it where it says there was evening and there was morning the first day. Evening, morning, the second day. 
from a Hebrew perspective, from the biblical perspective, a day begins at sunset. A day begins in rest. Which is why Jewish people would begin their Sabbath on the evening, which is such a helpful thing for us to incorporate into our Sabbath practice. Because it reminds us that while we are resting, God's at work in the world and we can entrust all our worries and concerns to that God, all our cares, they're in his hands while we rest. And think of that first human pair, Adam and Eve, they are created on the sixth day, the final creating day. And so the first full day of their existence was Sabbath, the seventh day, a day of rest. The first experience of time is one of rest, of God's loving delight. This is God's time, the practice of Sabbath, which trains us how we can relate to and understand time so that we can move into the rest of our clock-driven work week as different people, knowing we're not commodities, we're not production units, we're different. We are children of the creator. We are beloved. And so in a pandemic as well, as we struggle to know what day it is, where we sometimes, time seems to lose its sense of meaning and purpose, let us live in God's time. Practice Sabbath, friends, one day a week, so that we set apart this one day, very distinct, very different from all the rest, set one day apart to live in God's rest. We've put together a list of ideas and resources for you to consider and think about and plan to make your Sabbath a holy Sabbath, a special set-apart day. Because it will take planning on your part. You can see that link in the live stream notes below uh, here in the live stream. But I, in addition to planning, I, I encourage you to gather others around you to do this. We need help to do this. We need to do it together. I remember one of my mentors, Eugene Peterson, he was talking about the Sabbath and he noted there's a social dimension to Sabbath. He said, I don't think you can keep Sabbath by yourselves. It's a social thing. It requires a lot of relationship, a lot of help. There's just too much going on to distract you, he says. The most important thing he did in his practice was getting help from others. I know I need that help too. Our clock time culture has shaped us so deeply. Our instincts are so inclined towards work, efficiency, productivity, utility, that we hardly know what it is to do nothing, to rest, to to fritter away time with God and others. But together, it's possible. I think we have to be a little like, a little strategic, like there's a, there's a group in um, New York City, in the theater district. Um, there's a Jewish theater company called 24-6, and it was formed specifically for Sabbath-observant Jews. In the theater industry, they could never get jobs because if they were observant of Sabbath— They couldn't go to rehearsals on Friday or shows on Saturdays. And so members in 24-6, this company they created, they're not required to rehearse or perform on Friday nights or Saturday afternoons. They are freed up to pursue both their convictions and their vocation at the same time. I wonder, are we serious enough about our Sabbath practices to do something like that? to encourage one another, maybe to provide material support for people whose work uh, schedules happen to have on Sundays. Can we come around them to encourage them? Can we provide creative solutions, even material support? I think it's that sort of 
community together initiative that we're going to need to practice this well. And here's just a simple starting point for all of our Sabbath to make sure that it's special, set apart. Can I encourage you to prepare for Sabbath the night before? So let's say it's a Sunday. That's your Sabbath. Saturday night, already start it then. That's where the Jewish practice begins. I think this is a healthy practice for us. So instead of, you know, a late night out with friends, leaving you tired, predisposed to sleep in, maybe miss out on Sunday worship, why not intentionally start, prepare your Sabbath on a Saturday night and enter into this sacred time of rest. Maybe it's a simple meal with your family or your roommates and then you rest and you wake up to God's time on a Sunday. Through the gift of a Sabbath of God's time we experience in our bodies the grace of God. God calls us friends to trust him to embrace this gift of Sabbath. It is the invitation to a different orientation, a different relationship with time. It's the invitation to rest, to experience the grace of God in our bodies, in space and time, because this is what we are always made for. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Friends, while we look at these practices in the next three weeks, we're going to have what we call practice time. If you've got a discipline, if you're learning an instrument, you need to practice it. And so we're going to do that every Sunday. We're going to intentionally practice these disciplines. And so right now, what I'd like you to do in your home, whoever you're with, is simply have a conversation right now. Let's take two minutes, maybe more, to talk about what is the biggest barrier you experience to practicing Sabbath in your life or in your home. So let's take a few minutes to have that conversation right now.